Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Thursday, April the 6th. America, Equity and Equality in Health, the title of a new five-part series published today. And what a fascinating time to be publishing a series looking at healthcare in the United States. The series is published in the April the 8th issue of The Lancet, along with our lead editorial, two comments, items in perspectives and correspondence. Basically, get hold of the April the 8th issue either in print or online and see for yourself. Also to mention that in terms of podcasts, we're going to be taking a closer look at this series. My colleagues Rebecca Cooney and Aaron Van Dorn, editors in our New York office, will be presenting podcasts with authors of each of the five papers, which will be posted over the next few weeks through the United States of Health blog podcast. But in this podcast, I've been fortunate enough to interview the two leaders behind this series. They are, for decades, busy clinicians and public health experts. Earlier, I spoke to them at their home in New York City. Doctors David Himmelstein and Steffi Woolhandler, many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet podcast. Can you just give us some background to the series? I imagine it's been a, a long time in gestation. It has indeed more than a year. Actually, it started when we, with a, a young colleague, Sam Dickman, submitted a paper to The Lancet on inequities in healthcare financing. The editor said, well, this particular paper, probably not for us, but we'd like to see a more general review article on the topic and review articles on an ensemble of topics regarding inequities and inequalities in the U.S. So that was about a year and a half ago now. We reached out to respected colleagues, and um, here we are a year and a half later with uh, a series we're quite happy with. The central theme of the series is highlighting a widening gap in inequity and inequality, particularly in relation to income for working age Americans. Inequality in income has been widening very rapidly in the United States. And since the last recession, essentially all of the increase in income and wealth during the recovery has gone to people in the top a few percent of the income distribution. And incomes for the other 80% or so of Americans have stagnated. But as income inequality has increased, we've also seen this huge increase in inequality and survival. And the richest 1% of Americans now live 10 to 15 years longer than the poorest 1% of Americans. And that gap in survival is actually increasing. So we're headed toward a health crisis in the United States that really mirrors the crisis in terms of growing inequality in income. So very much really this series is really looking at American society and the way it is structured, isn't it? And health is, is obviously inextricably linked across so many different dimensions. That's the point of this series and how this series differs from series we've done before concerning health in America. That's exactly right. The Lancet has a long history of emphasizing the inextricable links between broader social issues and health. And certainly in the U.S. today, the profound impact of, of what's going on not just in the healthcare system, but in the way people live every day and experience their working lives, uh, uh, incomes, every aspect of their life profoundly influences their health and is causing a, a widening increase in inequality. And that's very much the focus of paper one. What would you say is the key message from paper one, which is looking very specifically at income inequality? Income inequality causes people to get sick. But the healthcare system ought to ameliorate that. 
The healthcare system ought to be reducing those inequalities, and yet the healthcare system is actually piling on more inequalities. It's giving people unequal access to care, so poor people get less care. It's actually forcing poorer Americans to spend more of their income on health care than rich people do, so that they're we're increasing the inequality in disposable incomes. So the healthcare system ought to be helping reduce the harms from income inequality, and yet it's really exacerbating them. And of course, this series is being published at an incredibly prescient time for America generally,、uh, and specifically to the health of America. Just two weeks before we published this series, the new administration failed to get the American Healthcare Act even as far as a vote in Congress, and is failing to do what it pledged to do in the run-up to the election, which was to repeal and replace Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, the signature legislation of President、uh, Obama. Paper two is looking back at the Affordable Care Act. Well, we've narrowly averted a health disaster with the Republicans having failed to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, and yet. The Affordable Care Act has not created a stable and satisfactory healthcare system. We made advances with it, and the Republicans would have us go very far backward. But there's much that that remains to be done in healthcare reform. So, under the Affordable Care Act, we still have about 29 million people who have no health insurance whatsoever, and tens of millions more who have coverage and yet. Still can't afford the medical care that they need because that coverage comes with very high out-of-pocket costs, deductibles and copayments that the patient must pay when they actually need to use medical services. And in some ways, the Affordable Care Act reinforced the market-based approach to our healthcare financing system, and because of that, was really unable to. Address the fundamental problems of the healthcare system. So I think the message of that paper is: it was an advance. The Affordable Care Act was an advance, but an advance that remained within a, a fundamentally defective paradigm of how health financing ought to be done, and therefore couldn't fully address the the problems of our healthcare financing. System. It was always a compromise, wasn't it? I mean, one has to remember the Affordable Care Act. It had a it had a really tough time even getting to the statute book, didn't it? It was indeed a compromise, and as you say, it had problems being passed to a large extent because there wasn't a single Republican prepared to really adequately engage in in dialogue about what healthcare reform ought to be. And frankly, the, the Democrats lay down a bit on the job as well. They they really didn't start from a A vigorous proposal for what should be done. They started from a compromised position.、And、the Affordable Care Act ad- adopted a framework that had been first laid out by Richard Nixon in 1971, a Republican, rather conservative president, who was trying to avert a national health insurance reform that Senator Kennedy proposed at that time. And our very conservative Heritage Foundation later took up that that design and proposed. What essentially became Obamacare, and it was only later that the Republicans abandoned that design. Once President Obama said that was what he was going to do, in hopes that there could be a compromise with the Republicans. We'll come back at the end of the podcast and, and talk about the future and the implications from this series, leading on from relating to the Affordable Care Act, and we just need to cover briefly. Couple of the other papers in the series on these really arresting, difficult topics. Paper three deals with 
structural racism within the United States and how that impacts on health. Racism is a, is a tough word and a difficult subject to talk about. So I think we need to be really careful, as the paper is, in defining what we're talking about here. What do we mean by structural racism within the context of healthcare? The United States has a very uh, bad history of racism. We, of course, had slavery until 1865. We had 300 years of slavery of African Americans. We also had genocide against our Native American populations, but people who remain have had their land stolen and are often forced to live in, on very poor quality land. So those important historical issues have created a whole set of structures that continues to compromise the health of the Black and Native American populations in the United States. A major issue is housing segregation, which has forced African Americans into neighborhoods with overpriced, dilapidated housing, with poor neighborhood amenities that might help their health, uh, lack of supermarkets, lack of parks. So despite some of the cultural richness of those neighborhoods, the health in those neighborhoods tends to be very bad. Uh, life expectancy for African Americans is about four years shorter than for white Americans. We need to address issues like segregated housing, the strength of those communities. We need to strengthen African American communities, giving them the physical resources to actually improve their health. You know, and similar issues around the communities of Native Americans in this country. We're not talking about an individual person having a racist attitude toward Blacks or Native Americans. We're talking about the very structures of society that deny Blacks and Native Americans the uh, health-giving amenities that they need in order to thrive. Things like, besides housing, education, uh, access to jobs, access to finance and credit, which we have extraordinarily sound evidence show are often denied to these populations in our country even today. It's a very powerful paper, which I urge everyone listening to this to read along with the other serious papers. And paper four actually relates to the paper you've just described. Paper four talks about mass incarceration. And again, these data are not new, but to the uninitiated, they're quite eye-watering when you look at the amount of incarceration that goes on in the United States and how that disproportionately affects black Americans and the negative impacts that has, not just for people who become incarcerated, but also the effect that can have on, on, on their families. How would you distill briefly the, the key messages from paper four, which is looking at mass incarceration. The United States has two million people behind bars as we speak, but literally tens of millions of people have been affected by overly aggressive policing, mass incarceration, and unfair judicial system over the past few decades. This affects not just the person who is arrested, but it affects their partners, often girlfriends, it affects their children. It removes a lot of young men from the community. They can't make an economic contribution to their family. And when they get out of jail, often their lives are seriously compromised. They can't get jobs. They're not allowed into public housing. And the health of people who have been paroled, who have been in jail and are now out of jail, is dreadful. It's a life expectancy for that group is many years shorter than people who've never been arrested. So when you go around arresting uh, literally millions of young minority men, you really compromise not only their health, 
but the health of entire communities. Misbehaviors among whites are treated much more benignly than similar misbehaviors among young men of color. And that has translated into a very serious healthcare problem in the United States. The final paper in the series, this picks up data from 1980 to 2014, and this is looking specifically at mortality and life expectancy across the United States, and it picks up with what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast. How would you summarize the key thrust of Paper 5? Jacob Bohr and his colleagues have done an extraordinary job of pulling together the data from a wide variety of studies, showing that we have strikingly divergent mortality trends based on income. So the richer are living longer and longer, but poor Americans are not achieving gains in life expectancy. Therefore, the gap between rich and poor and how long you live has been widening dramatically in recent years. And it's particularly the very poor who are suffering here. So the the gap between the richest and the near rich is not widening particularly, but the gap between the very poor and those just above is really growing dramatically. We have a slow motion health disaster coming our way. If these trends continue, a substantial segment of our population is seems likely to experience much worse health than their parents' generation. A real gulf in our society between uh, classes, if, if one can say, in the most fundamental measure of, of how one lives and how one prospers in the society, that is how long you live. So I think they give us warning that we're in the early stages of what may be a long-term disaster. There's a striking phrase used in this paper, warning of a 21st century health income poverty trap. And I have to say, this is not just specific to the United States. Here in the United Kingdom, where I'm speaking to you from, we have a national health service, but we still have massive drivers of inequities in health, the social determinants of health. We know that people from who live in certain parts of the UK have far worse health and far worse life expectancy than, than in other parts. So it's not unique to America, but it is very specific to the American social outlook though, isn't it? It is. And one of the things that's quite striking is it is not only racial minorities that are suffering this poverty income trap. In fact, poor white people are also at this point suffering, it appears, declining longevity in the U.S. And that's an almost unprecedented development in our country. And it, it looks like that set to continue unless we really have a major change in our society, including healthcare, but other aspects of society. Reflecting on this series, we've briefly painted broad brushstrokes over the five papers there. The fascinating and crucial thing is, is what we take away from this series, how this series will be received. We've highlighted some genuine, deep-rooted health problems that are embroidered within the social fabric of American society. I don't think that's putting it too strongly. We need to come up with suggestions. And obviously, you're both well known for, for many years. You've been campaigning for equitable health, particularly through your Physicians for a National Health Program and for a single-payer system. This clearly is completely relevant now in terms of the aspirations and hopes coming out of this series and given the very unstable political landscape in America at the moment. The United States needs to abandon the market model for health care. We're seeing this health poverty trap emerge because in part because the health care system is not working and in part because of income inequality. The little glimmer of hope here is that both the issue of addressing income inequality and the issue of 
single-payer universal health care are now on the policy agenda. Income inequality is one of the top issues that Americans care about. In polls, it's one of the top issues that politicians are beginning to speak about. And similarly, we've seen a huge increase in interest in a universal uh, single-payer program for the United States just over the past few months. These are the things we need to do. We need a broad set of policies to reverse the trend toward increasing income inequality, and we need a broad set of health interventions, including universal health care, in order to ameliorate the effect of this inequality on survival, which is turned into an extremely serious problem in the United States at present. Even in the past few months, do you sense that the conversation, the dialogue in mainstream American parlance now, and I, I include in that the media, that America is prepared now to have a real hard look at itself and realize that in terms of healthcare, single payer has to be the only logical way forward, at least to explore reforming the health system, given that the market-based system has failed. I think we actually oddly have more progress ahead because of the Trump regime. The failure of the, the Republican reform really to a large extent, resulted from an upsurge of opposition and an outpouring of sentiment that we needed to move forward, not backward, on healthcare. So we've seen mobilization in an unprecedented way around healthcare issues, with uh, tens of thousands of people coming out to protest when the Republicans put forward their health agenda. That's really triggered new interest in, well, okay, we've stopped the Republicans from taking us backward, at least for the moment. But how do we move forward from this? And uh, we know now that Senator Sanders, who has a commentary in this issue, will offer a single-payer bill in the Senate. Such a bill has not previously been offered for quite a number of years. We see the the beginnings of a, a real upsurge, not just in political terms, but in the media. The New York Times, our banner newspaper, featuring several op-ed pieces for the first time in oh, a decade or so, that call for single-payer national health insurance and media conversation broadly in the radio and television in communities around the country. So we're actually heartened by the reaction to the Republican plan that has brought us new possibilities for where we can go. It is a truly incisive fascinating series. David Himmelstein and Steffi Wallhandler, you are the leaders of this series. Thank you very much for talking to me on the podcast. And I just have this funny feeling we're going to be talking to you again in the future. But in the meantime, huge thanks for all your work on the series. And thank you for your time today on the podcast. Thanks so much, Richard. Goodbye.